Deepu is a very well-dressed man. And so uh, critiquing <laughs> his style is probably the worst offense, probably worse than the laptops being stolen, right? Hello and welcome. This is Neftali Serrano. This is the Integrated Care Podcast sponsored by the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. We are excited to be here with you again today. Uh, We've got our team members here, all of us except for one, Jeffrey Ring, who's going to be actually joining us a little bit later on in a special segment for us. But um, hey, you've heard my voice. Let's have the rest of the team say hello. Deepu? Good morning from the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, we are doing good here. It was a little stormy last night. Good weather in the morning. Uh, and uh, I think I have some updates for you guys from yes. what happened to me from last time. So I can yes, we're, talk we about are, that after everybody says hi. We are anxiously waiting for Deepu's story. It is um, uh, a, a, both a tragedy and a triumph, I would say. So <laughs> we'll, we'll just anxious to hear that. Yeah. Amber, say hello to everybody out there. Good morning, everyone. Um, The day that we're filming this today is actually my birthday, and I couldn't think of a better way to spend it than with these wonderful people. Um, So I'm happy to be joining from the Philadelphia area of Pennsylvania. Nice. And you're still of age where you tell people how old you are, right? Actually, this is the year that I stop. Oh, (laughs) This is the first anniversary of my 29th birthday. Oh, perfect. Very good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And Grace, uh, let everybody know that you're there. Hello, everyone. I'm here in Oklahoma City. Great. So, uh, again, this is the Integrated Care Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Um, you can find us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Um, and also on our website, integratedcarenews.com. So please check in, subscribe, let us know how we're doing. You can post comments on SoundCloud. Um, you can email us as well at info at cfha.net. Uh, just let us know what you think uh, might be some topics you want us to talk about. We've got a great podcast for you today. Lots to talk about, um, some special segments, interviews, um, all around uh, the world, the larger world of integrated care today. But before we do that, um, uh, we're just going to uh, check in as a team because we're, we're all anxiously awaiting to, to hear Deepu's story, but also check in with some of the other team members, see what they're doing uh, in their, uh, the, their professional lives as integrated care workers. So uh, Deepu, without further ado, where we left it <laughs> off last time, was that you were unable to join us for the podcast. We were all sad about that, um, especially because it was a topic that was important to you, right? Um, yes. And, uh, you know, we, we told the audience, hey, there's some bad stuff that's happened. Deepu was on his way to a funeral, and then all this stuff happened that didn't allow him to, to make it to us. So fill in, you know, give us the, 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 the rest of the story that hopefully has a happy ending. Yes. All right. So here we go. So I, I think one of the things that I've learned is that meaning creates um, a way out of traumatic experiences. And I think I have found some of that in the last few weeks. So I was at a, uh, I was at a eating eatery joint uh, in Atlanta somewhere. When I came back after dinner, I noticed that my back window of the car that I had rented was smashed open and they took my backpack and my luggage. Now, my backpack had my 
laptop, a grant application that I was working on, and probably, you know, the four years of my life that I spent with that machine. And it also had, more importantly, my passport and visa in it. And so in a quick minute, I find myself without any of those things in a uh, street in Atlanta. So for about a few weeks, I was living as an undocumented immigrant uh, because I didn't have any of my documents with me. And uh, I get in a Texas, LinkedIn no message from, in Texas, Mexico, you know, that too. And uh, I get a LinkedIn message from a man that I do not know who says, hey, my name is so-and-so. I'm trying to get in touch with you. I have found a bag uh, and your passport and visa and some of the books. And I could not have been thrilled. So if you don't believe in miracles, this may be your entry point, uh, your gateway story to get deeper into that. Uh, so I sent him a FedEx label and the stuff came back to me. And it had my passport and visa, which was probably the most important thing. Uh, my laptop's still missing. All of my books were still intact. Obviously, they weren't stealing for literary reasons. Um, <laughs> also, what came back in my backpack was my shoes I was in my luggage. So clearly, they were making a critical comment on my style and uh, the type of shoes that I wear. They did not fancy that. So <laughs> I'm happy to say... I got the most cherished things back, a lot of my journals back, and, uh, you know, it was a meaningful funeral. It was beautiful. Uh, I, in fact, probably made deeper connections because of the story, um, and I'm just reminded how the world is interconnected, and little acts of kindness can go a long way uh, to really really shape someone's future and current status. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. That's my story. Oh my. Wow. And, and, you know, in case you're, you're, the audience is missing the significance of the shoe part of the story, Deepu is a very well-dressed man. And so uh, critiquing <laughs> his style is probably the worst offense, probably worse than the laptops being stolen, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that it has a little bit of a a little bit of a, a redeeming aspect to what was clearly a tough situation. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and professionally, we're getting ready to have grand rounds today, and we had the privilege of having, having Dr. Frank Degree here. He's going to uh, spend some time with us today with our team, and so that's that's my update for you guys on that end. Cool, cool. Yeah, so... Uh, what are the rest of you up to these days uh, professionally? Um, yeah. Well, we've had kind of a sad month here um, in our program because we unexpectedly lost our program director who passed away on March 1st. Um, and so we've been grieving together and really focusing on how we can live lives that are vibrant and full of well-being, even in the middle of the stress of, you know, the fast-paced medical environment and a residency training program. And one of the things that we had already set in motion before that, that I've been working on is a a committee to kind of formalize some of the structures that we have in place, add some additional structures that are about promoting wellness among our residents, not just in our program, but there's uh, several residency programs in our, at our hospital. So we're 
working on ideas like establishing, formalizing a wellness resident role that would be a leadership position, um, doing some reading groups. Right now I'm reading uh, Kitchen Table Wisdom by Dr. Rachel Naomi Wisdom in some small groups with some of my residents. Um, we're talking about ways that we can buddy them up, develop mentoring, use mindfulness. And so we're just really trying to tap into all of those ideas of how we can live this rich, coherent life, even in the midst of the stress of training and, and grieving um, the colleague and friend that we lost. Yeah. And Grace, I hope it's okay to mention that the colleague, is it okay to mention how the colleague passed? I think so. Yeah, it was important to his family to know that he had, uh, for people to know that he had a long battle with suicide, or with depression, and he died by suicide. And that's something that we've been very open with the residents about. Um, and his his wife um, is actually also a he. She was the original behaviorist in our program, and so she has uh, very strongly said, you know, he. He tried every treatment. He did everything that there was to do. He was an excellent patient, um, but sometimes things just don't work out the way that we had hoped, and it's a time for grieving, but it's also a time for looking forward and coming together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and uh, thank you, Grace, for reaching out to us. I, you know, I think probably the same day that it happened, you reached out to our podcast team here, and hopefully our words were supportive for you in that process. Um, it's got to be a difficult, difficult thing to go through. And, you know, so in a impromptu way, I would say let's dedicate this podcast to your program. What's his name? Yes, Dr. Clemenson. He Dr. he was a, absolutely a champion of behavioral health and integration and meeting patients with cost-effective evidence-based care um, and was just a really fantastic leader and mentor. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it seems like a worthy person to dedicate this time to, so mm-hmm. thanks for sharing absolutely. that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, you know, I think that's probably something we, I, I, it's on our list, I believe, right, for us to kind of talk about uh, coming yes. up, just the issue of wellness and um, just how we train and, and some of the pros and cons of how we do that, both on the medical side and the behavioral health side. So mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to that conversation, and I think your experience will will be valuable there. Thank you. Yeah. So, Amber, um, what's your update? Yeah, so um, as you guys know, I'm still chugging along uh, in my program, um, but outside of that, um, this upcoming weekend, I am actually um, volunteering at the um, International Lyme and Related Diseases uh, Society conference um, that's going to be happening in Hershey, Pennsylvania, Um, so I'm really excited to be able to be a part of that because as a volunteer, you um, get time to hear the speakers in exchange for giving your time, Um, so that is a really cool trade-off. Um, this year, they're going to be going over um, the history of Lyme in the U.S., research updates. Um, there's actually going to be um, a neurocognitive and psychiatry um, symptoms um, talks in for like adults and children. Um, and I was lucky enough to get put in the presenters' rooms that are going to be discussing um, that topic. So I will be there um, Friday and Saturday, the April 6th and 7th, this upcoming weekend. So I'm really happy about that. That's awesome. 
It's great. I know that's a uh, topic that you're very passionate about. Yes, indeed. <laughs> great. Well, uh, we, you know, my quick update is, um, you know, I'm the executive director of this great association with wonderful members like you guys. Um, but I really, really miss seeing patients. And so one of the things I've been working towards is to volunteer some of my time to uh, get back to seeing patients in primary care. Um, and so I've started uh, seeing some patients at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, here locally for me. And I've uh, been at uh, about three sessions now in the last month. Yeah, I think three times I've gone. Uh, so I have a little semi-regular half-day schedule. And it's been so much fun to be back in clinic. It's a residency clinic, so you guys can relate. Um, uh, and they've just been fantastic. The residents have been great. The faculty's been great. Um, little trick I, I developed. I've learned a bunch of tricks, of, you know, kind of trying to stimulate warm handoffs and things like that over the years. But this one I hadn't tried okay. before, interestingly, after 17 years. But, you know, with resident schedules... Uh, they're all over the place. So, you know, even if you're go showing up on the same day every week, you're going to have different people there. And that's part of the challenge if you don't have full coverage of a clinic, right? So I've been trying to rack my brain, like, how do I make myself more available? How do I make myself visible? And there's like four different hallways, you know. You guys know the challenge that I'm talking about. So I thought, okay, I here's, <laughs> here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to uh, you know, just look at the HR. In our case, it's Epic, and I'm gonna find out who's on that morning. What are who are the faculty and residents on NPAs, and then I'm just gonna email them the night before and say I'm gonna be there Tuesday morning. Use me, and lo and behold, it worked. I saw five patients one morning, four patients the next. Had lots of other curbside consultations uh, aside from that. Um, so little tidbit there. You know, if you're part-time at a clinic they don't have full coverage just email folks the night before uh that might help you help help things stimulate the awareness that you're there so that's what's going on with me I like sometimes that. the simplest solutions get us the best results <laughs> i know i know yeah yeah well, let's transition here real quick, and we've got a jam-packed podcast here, so we'll make these uh, news items uh, as brief as we can. Um, Deepu, why don't you lead us in with your news item for the month? Sure. I, I think uh, the news item that I have is an article called Do Antidepressants Work? Now, this is probably a long-standing debate in the medical community and the research community and you know the meta-analysis and other things have shown that at best antidepressants have the most therapeutic effects in severe depression in the first two months and it's the, the jury still out on uh, mild to moderate uh, symptoms of depression but the reason i bring this up is that where it showed up uh, dr len nichols was our keynote speaker last year at cfha and uh, i had followed up with him on a few things and he had recommended few blog posts to watch constantly. So that's why there are four sites that I go to regularly to see. And so this appears in a blog post uh, or a blog called The Incidental Economist. So I'm just, I'm bringing it up because of where the conversation is happening. It's not happening in a medical context. It's not happening in an integrated behavioral health context. Um, and it's really talking about 
the debate of antidepressants in a non-medical, non-clinical form. Uh, and I thought that was particularly interesting. Um, and they're basically talking about the lack of data in providing conclusive results to consumers. And they're also talking about the dangers of how some studies are published, um, where the results are framed as, we have solved the depression issue or you know things like that. And sort of being cautious about um, the silver bullet kind of treatments for very complex human experiences like depression. Um, so that's that's my brief news item. Uh, so the incidental economist um, for those of you who are interested on a follow-up. Yeah, and we'll have those in the show notes, of course, the link anyway. Great, and I'm not even going to touch that topic because we could do an entire. We probably should do an entire podcast on that. <laughs> we should. I just, I, yeah, I was going to say maybe I, we should. Uh, but- bookmark that for another time that's right (laughs) oh my goodness yeah i'm just i'm actively censoring myself just letting you know (laughs) self-regulation baby (laughs) grace what's your news item for the month Mine is about the fda has given the first approval for a direct to consumer test well to market a direct to consumer dna test for a few of the brca variants um 23andme is the company that's gotten the permission to do this and a couple of things that came out to me that were a little bit underneath the headline when you drill down a little more that that give me this sort of conflicted feeling about it. On the one hand, I think giving people access to their health, empowering them to find that information, to be, you know, to have that agency in their care is so important. On the other hand, when it's done outside of that context of a provider relationship um, and outside of the context of that support with such potentially emotionally laden information, it can be, um, I just have, I have mixed feelings about that because I think that the role of the provider and the communication that the provider gives is so important as you're considering options and, um, and they make clear, you know, they say, First of all, this is only three variants out of over a thousand known variants that impact that BRCA uh, mutation. And they impact like this should not be decision making. This is just for information. You should talk to your doctor. But I just, um, yeah, I believe so strongly in the power of that provider patient relationship in helping to interpret that those results in helping to navigate some of the emotions surrounding that, you know, hereditary risk of cancer, that it just gives me a little bit of pause. Uh, But I also am excited about the ways that patients will continue to be empowered to make their own healthcare decisions. So. Great. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, uh, that's a really burgeoning area that's that we're going to hear more and more about as people get more and more information about their genetic risks. Um, and we're going to be in the middle of a lot of those conversations as care teams. Um, so yeah, great, great point. Just as a side note, uh, just coincidentally, um, I, I didn't cue Grace to bring up the 23andMe thing and we are not sponsored by 23andMe yet. Uh, (laughs) but I will say that, uh, in the last month I actually signed up for 23andMe and got my results back. Really interesting, fascinating. I'll just give you the quick teaser and maybe, you know, this is not related to integrated care, so we won't have a discussion about this. <laughs> but so here's my breakdown, not surprisingly, as a Latino. 
I have uh, about 60% what's called sort of Iberian uh, DNA, so southern, basically the, the peninsula of, uh, that comprises Spain and Portugal. Uh, and then 15% West African, which is more than likely slave uh, blood uh, from South America, mixed in with 15% Native American, which is uh, the native uh, population of South America. So where my South America and the Caribbean, where my parents are from. So, uh, yeah. So this is not an official endorsement of 23andMe, uh, but but super interesting stuff. So thanks, Chris. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've actually done the 23andMe too, just to, uh, to jump right. on board. Yeah. There you go. It, was, it was actually really helpful when, when I was going through um, my personal like health issues. It was really helpful to kind of know some of the underlying things that were going on. But disclaimer, I was working with a medical professional who was helping me to cipher through all the data and things like that because I don't think I would have known what to do with it um, after I gotten everything aside from, you know, the fun facts about your heritage of which mine is pretty boring. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I, you know, the interesting thing re- relative to Grace's comment there, I intentionally, when I did the DNA, you can actually choose to purchase the additional health risk factors. And I intentionally decided not to purchase that component. I was mostly interested in the, the genetic uh, DNA uh, roots, um, but uh, I knew I, I had that issue that I, I just I didn't know what I would do with the results, and I didn't, didn't know how I would interpret it. Who would help me interpret that? Yeah, and my understanding is even if you do the health test, it gives you more options for do you want this specific result. So consumers do have an option to think first and decide before they choose that. And there's an education module that couples with it. So I think they're doing great things to promote that education part. But again, the relationship is so important. And and what are you going to do if that comes back negative? Yeah. And, you know, you're sitting in your house by yourself opening a letter or an email as opposed to sitting in your provider's office with a physician that you trust and that you know cares about you. So just yeah. interesting. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah. Amber, what's your news item? Um, so I actually uh, went on and did a little bit of looking I kind of cheated because I used this for school and for our podcast we're excited um, spoken like know? a good student right there no, yes <laughs> double up plagiarism involved I'm just you know got limited time but um so one of the things that I was looking into is the different populations that are not only in need of collaborative care but um are maybe it's would be great for them but it's harder to deliver it. Um, and I found out that one of those populations is um, people who are being treated for substance abuse. Um, and apparently there's a lot going on um, on the horizon where they're trying to create more evidence-based um, practices so that it makes more sense to be able to have them seen in a collaborative care setting. Um, so this article um, that I found, it's actually from Psych News, Um, They talk about the brief addiction monitor um, as a promising and widely implemented uh, tool because one of the main barriers is that um, when people are looking at substance abuse and collaborative care, 
Um, it's really difficult to have like the outcome measures and to track progress and to do screening and um, be able to implement things um, such as like urine testing and stuff like that because a lot of um, like primary care providers don't want to touch that population just because it's tricky. Um, you don't want to be prescribing drugs like um, I think they say in this um, article like naltrexone and different and different things like that. So because it is such a specialty, it goes in these specialty categories where there isn't really a clinic setting of collaborative care. Um, so they're trying to figure out different ways to break down those barriers so that a collaborative care model can be used with that particular population where it, again, would probably be very useful and very needed. So that was that was my little news article and I wrote a whole paper about it. <laughs> cool. Very good. Yeah, it's nice to see that actually uh, that's filtering down to your studies, right? Because a lot of times what's happening uh, at the edge of the field, which this is a, a leading edge of the field right now. In fact, our, our annual conference in Rochester in October, uh, this is one of the foci of the conference. It's, um, you know, bringing, integrating substance abuse treatment um, into primary care. Um, using things like MAT and the BAM, which you referenced, uh, is a is a tool that's sometimes used uh, to track outcomes, et cetera. So it's nice to know that it's actually filtering down into into the academic training. It doesn't always happen. Yeah. Cool. All right. Last news item here. I'm up. Um, I won't take a long time belaboring this because this is more of a tangent um, than anything else, but. <laughs> Uh, most people who know me know that I'm a little bit of a tech geek. I love technology. I love the potential. Um, I would say it's a love-hate relationship. I hate it when it doesn't work well. Uh, but, And I think I referenced this in an earlier podcast. Uh, this is more of a teaser because I haven't experienced this yet, but it turns out I am one of, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 institutions nationally that are going to be piloting um, uh, a uh, an expansion to Apple's health uh, health app. So if you if you're in the Apple ecosystem, you know that you've got this health app that tracks things like, um, uh, you know your steps and things like that. But it can also track other things if you have an Apple Watch, like your heart rate, etc. And so uh, now all that information that you're tracking is going to be integrated into the medical records um, of these participating institutions. So in my case, my healthcare is through UNC, University of North Carolina. So that's one of the participating institutions that's piloting this. So I just want to let you know, if you're wow. in that area and you download the recent update, which is uh, iOS 11.3, your, your stuff, you can give permission. You have to give it permission uh, in order for this to happen. But your uh, information uh, can be integrated right into um, into your health record as part of your institution. So these are the institutions, John Hopkins, uh, Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles, Penn Medicine in Philly, uh, Geisinger Health System in Danville, Pennsylvania, uh, UC San Diego, uh, UNC, I mentioned, Rush University in Chicago, Dignity Health in Arizona, Ochsner Health System in Louisiana, MedStar in Washington, D.C., Ohio Health in Columbus, Ohio, and Cerner Health Clinic in Kansas City, Missouri. So I've got a pretty good breath there. So I will report back to everyone on my experience with that. 
um, how easy it is to use, how it integrates. And then eventually, if I make a doctor's appointment, um, I'm just going to be curious to see what they do with this information. Like, you know, that's what I'm thinking. Like it tracks so much. What way is that going to be pulled into the record? How are they going to just lots of questions, but lots of possibilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, think about it. If you're if you're a BHC and you're seeing someone for where behavioral activation is one of your goals or weight management right. is one of your goals, you, you actually have some really real time data to correlate with whether what the patient's telling you about their activity uh, actually mirrors the data. So that's at least one I interesting use. Think about like the older, I mean, kind of older at this point, but like diary studies, you know, where they'd have patients track information or I was reading a study where all of the participants in the study were given like a Palm Pilot that they were supposed to record their information in and just how much more technology is integrated now into our lives and our wearables and the potential that has for research. And I, I'm ex- that makes me excited. Right. Actually, one of our BHCs during a consult actually, like, you know, uh, so I am not to sort of divide Apple versus Android, but I am of the Samsung universe as such. But, uh, you know, we Samsung won't, we won't hold that against before. you. I was going to say, hasn't he had techni- technical issues before? No, You're the reason our group text is green instead of blue. Yeah, exactly. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's a good thing you found your visa. (laughs) (laughs) I will recruit some more Android folks to this conversation. (laughs) We'll have a showdown in Rochester. Rochester, If anyone's listening, Android. But uh, the Samsung phones actually records your steps, whether you know it or not. Um, And so one of our BAT sort of asked the patient to take out their phone and look at their steps. And we actually knew that, you know, we could match up and then sort of use that as a thing. And I think many patients don't know what your watch is capable of. So I saw a patient for sleep hygiene a few weeks ago. And instead of giving her a two-week sleep diary, I said, did, did you know your watch can record your sleep and give us a lot of information? She had no idea. So she's going to start wearing her watch at night. So, yeah, cool. absolutely. Yeah, in fact, uh, there's a couple of interesting uses to that end that are being studied now. Uh, one is just on uh, heart disease. So, um, mm-hmm. the recent study that came out that actually showed the Apple Watch uh, can measure, um, I think it was, and don't quote me on this, but I think it's heart murmurs or other sort of heart issues um, better than some of the formalized equipment that that they're using at present. Um, So it can be used for early detection. And then um, uh, the other one was sleep apnea. They're they're studying whether it can be a helpful tool for for identifying sleep apnea. Um, So yeah, cool I'll stuff. I'll look to see if I can link to those uh, that information in the show notes also. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. Fancy. Yeah. Well, uh, as we said, we've got a great podcast here for you. Uh, our, our main topic today is uh, around the larger world of integrated care. You'll hear us talk a lot about uh, behavioral health integration. And when we talk about that, we often sort of narrow it down to people like us, right? Um, psychologists, social workers, MFTs. Um, other trained licensed behavioral health personnel. Um, But the world of integrated care is actually larger than that. 
So uh, to, to sort of usher us into that conversation, Deepu, uh, tell us why this is important and what, what, what we're talking about, about this larger world. Sure. Um, so one of the things that I thought in, in introducing this broader conversation was to sort of say, how do we put this in context? Like where did some of these ideas come up and why are we doing the things that we're doing? And uh, we have Dr. Frank Degree here, who's actually been one of the early voices in defining things like primary care and integrative behavioral health and all of these things. And as he was talking to the medical students yesterday, he really broke down primary care. And I think that those are sort of the values that we are uh, moving towards in the wor world of integrated care that is much broader than people health consoles in a primary care clinic, right? So one of the first things that he said is that uh, this kind of care, primary care, is accessible, right? So accessibility is a key defining uh, point in uh, looking at the system. Second is that it is based on relationships, that there is some kind of human connection and, and the networks that we are connected to are leveraged as part of the care and hopefully the health benefits that we all receive. The third thing that he really talked about was that we, uh, as a system, take responsibility for almost all concerns that people come in with. So we're no longer, you know, concerned about their substance use and their diabetes. We're looking at uh, this culture of whole integrated health because people don't come to us with brain disorders and, and body disorders, right? They come to us as one. Uh, so I feel like the larger world of integrated care that we are all becoming part of needs to respond to these things. Then the third thing that he, uh, or the fourth thing that he talked about was that this kind of care happens over time, that there is a time lapse, and that in that time lapse, the care that we provide is iterative, so that there is no one single solution that's going to take away X. Um, and then... All of this happens in the context of family and community. Those are the nesting systems that are decisively shaping our, our behaviors, our choices, our opportunities, um, and our access in many ways, right? So the, the, depending on the, the context of family and community that you're in. And so we're constantly responding to a complex adaptive environment in the healthcare system. And the challenge really is, how do we develop personalized care plans for people, not based on guidelines, right? Because guidelines sort of are guidelines. They're not the answer to it all. But how do we mix the guidelines with the person in front of us? And it's fair to say, if we are truly um, addressing care in the context of family and community, and using relationships as a vehicle by that by which that happens, then there are broader players players that need to be part of the conversation. So these include people like promotoras or community health workers. Um, these include people like care managers, care managers who would help patients work with the primary care system and learn how to use the system in efficient ways and work with the, the, the clinical team to really make things happen. There are patient navigators uh, who can help patients understand the complex system that we're all part of that I, I must say, as a healthcare professional, 
don't always fully understand. So I can't imagine what it's like for a patient to go through the system. And then, you know, a, a powerful thing in group psychotherapy is the idea that uh, we all share a universal sense of vulnerability and hope. So your peer who has a similar life condition or a disease state is likely have a competitive edge on what's happening to you. So peer support specialists are the other heroes that are becoming a big part of the conversation and I think very important uh, as we think about the, the widening margins of integrated care. So that's sort of um, my broad introduction to sort of help us think through this. Uh, does that capture that, Naftali? Is that? That's excellent. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, uh, what a great uh, serendipitous uh, coincidence that, that uh, Dr. Degree was there and then you channeled him right. like, so I've heard him talk before and yeah, you channeled him so perfectly. That's that's awesome. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, so there there's this larger world and what, what's happened is now we've got a lot of different team members that are part of that world. And, and it's, an, it's, it's just an interesting phenomenon to me. There's both uh, pros and cons to it. Um, and I, I'd like that to be part of our discussion here today. You know, sort of what are, what are the, some of the pros? Like, obviously, we know that um, everything you talked about, DPU, being more comprehensive in, in our care for patients, uh, particularly complex patients. I think that's where a lot of this conversation revolves, right? It's, it's not necessarily right. the run-of-the-mill patient um, who's generally healthy, right. uh, not a lot of comorbid psychosocial issues that's, that's going to benefit from this new care team um, uh, approach, uh, but these complex patients, patients who have multiple illnesses, uh, medical, um, oftentimes also behavioral, and then on top of that, lots of psychosocial issues, homelessness, um, food access issues, et cetera, right? Um, so, you know, I think one of the interesting things that I think of with this is, you know, how to logistically, I'm always the program developer in me and the implementer in me is thinking, you know, how do we integrate these folks in? How do we integrate the promotora, the community health worker, the peer support specialist? Because the primary care space, um, although it becomes more capable, also becomes more crowded. Um, and then uh, and then the second piece of that is, um not only how we integrate these folks, but also um, how do we um, uh, match the patient, the right patient to the right sort of part of our care team or part right part of the service. So these are the things that come to my mind, and in part because I visited some clinics where literally, literally the pod is crowded. Uh, you know, you've got You've got the health coach, you've got the promotora, you've got the BHC. Uh, in some cases, you even have like legal advocates um, there. Uh, you've got a care manager doing some social referrals, et cetera. Um, and, mm -hmm. and then there can actually, I've seen sometimes, and again, I'm only focusing on the negatives. I've seen very positive things, but sometimes where there's actually competition there as well, where people are, feel like they have overlapping roles and not quite sure how to, how to be organized as a team. So, uh, it, you know, there's great promise, but there are also great challenges there as well. Sure. Um, I, I think one of the things that, um, so we, we are currently doing a, a sort of a quasi-experimental study on a PCBH implementation project. And 
because of where we are located, we actually lost access to a lot of our patients right after the presidential election. Uh, we are in a border region. A lot of our patients have uh, challenges with uh, documentation for um, their citizenship and things related to that. So we suddenly lost a, a good chunk of our sample. Uh, one of our workarounds with that was to work with a promotora to help us reach out to them and start connecting with them, especially to get data for the study. But one of the, the side benefits that we've seen is that our patients in the study, their follow-ups have increased in the last six months, and she's been part of the study, than it has ever been in the last two years in their relationship with the clinic. Um, and a lot of that has much more to do with how she has talked to them and presented to them and sort of um, sort of reconnected that trust back to the clinic. So in one way, I think I wonder if uh, like a peer support specialist and a promotora or community health worker, their role is really taking beyond the walls of the clinic um, and sort of really uh, sort of increasing the bandwidth that we actually have with uh, geographic regions where our patients live. And that there's, you know, a, a reminder, a connection uh, of those things, right? So I could see um, her doing roles like looking at basic care plans that we have in place and then sort of doing these home visits, especially for our really complex patients and sort of reminding them about behavior activation or how their sleep hygiene is going or uh, if they manage to walk to their mailbox a couple of times a week, like, you know, so like ensuring that there are these other accountable measures um, that can go. But I, I think the danger or, you know, opportunity versus, um, you know, creative problem solving is the crowdedness that you're talking about, Naftali. Yeah, and, and the corollary to that is also the the issue of training and role definition. And I think one of the yeah. reasons why that promotora uh, was able to do a good job and is because her role was defined well. And right. I imagine right. that she right. had good training and had a good disposition to do the work. I think that's part yes. of what's still getting sort of settled out here is what 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 are the definitions for all these roles? Right. And then what is a training that has to go along with it? It's different than, you know, those of us on this podcast where we've got sort of a slew of hoops that we have to jump through to get those letters behind our name. Um, the, those processes haven't been perfectly settled out yet for these other workers. Yeah. In Texas, there's actually uh, you have to be a certified community health worker. So there is a state level uh, certification that you have to get and that you have X number of things that you have to cover. And then um, I think locally what we've been trying to do is to introduce behavioral health CEUs uh, for promotoras. So they are trained in basic behavioral health response, mental health first aid, those kinds of things. Uh, Katie Kanzler, who is at University of Texas uh, Health Science Center in San Antonio, she is working on a project where she wants to train promotoras on basic acceptance and commitment therapy to sort of take that into the work that they do. So, you know, it's a lot more skill-based, competency-driven, uh, which I think is what adds to the asset of our integrated care mission, right? Like, what is it 
what is a decisive difference that we can bring that would extend the type of interventions that we put out there? Yeah, and Grace, didn't you mention you're doing a training right after this podcast? Yes, I have to leave in about 11 minutes. Uh, I'm going to train our care coordinators that work with our organization in motivational interviewing. Um, we have a really exciting project, I think, going on called the 550 Project, where we're you know, acknowledging that there's 5% of the patients who are associated with about 50% of some of the expense. Um, and so we're trying to target, and that's some of that risk stratification that you were talking about. You know, How do we provide the right level of services to the people mm -hmm. who need it most? Because you know, my bias is that everyone can benefit from behavioral health, but there's not enough of us to give that level of intervention to everyone. So we've got to find a way to target some of those approaches. And our care coordinators, especially through that 550 project, are really some of the ones that are working close, most closely with these patients. And so I'm going to try to, um, you know, give them just a beginning basic introduction to motivational interviewing, which I think is, you know, just the set of skills and techniques that any of us can use in any of these roles. Um, but I, I really agree with you, Naftali, that part of what we really need to think about is the role delineation and the risk stratification. It's how can we target the right patient with the right level of service and how can we you know have this level of communication and share treatment plans so we are breeding collaboration instead of competition because there are plenty of patients to be seen there is plenty of work to be done we just need to match those you know match that expertise with the patients who it's going to reach the best yeah, and and I I wanna I'm a I'm the guy that constantly points out the elephant in the room. Uh, I'm that guy at the meeting, um, and I, I'll just point out one sort of pink elephant in the room that I think we just have to acknowledge, which is there is some sort of uh, professional you could say jealousy or competition because in some measure um, I, I think some folks with professionals, those of us with letters around uh, behind our names can feel threatened sometimes by some of these folks thinking, well, they're bringing them in because they're cheaper labor. Um, and, and I think we've, we've kind of got to get over that, <laughs> you know, uh, we've got to get over that for, for all the reasons that Deepu said that, that a lot of times we're not the best persons to reach our patients. Uh, we don't have the right skill sets. We're not in the right position in the community. Um, and, right. we're, and so we're limited. We just have to recognize that. And yes, a lot of these folks get paid less than folks with letters behind their name. Um, but that's that's part of it. And frankly, in a lot of these instances, I actually appreciate the fact that the clinics are creating jobs for individuals, often from the community. They're good jobs. These are good jobs to be a promotora, right. community health worker, um, peer specialist, etc. So, you know, we've, we do have to do a good job of of integrating these folks, doing that risk stratification, doing the role delineation, et cetera. So those are those are issues there. Um, and, and then we just have to kind of get over some of our own professional stuff, I think. Yeah. I like the way that you reframed it is because, you know, then we get to do what we're good at. And, you know, there's a reason that there's the saying jack of all trades, master of none, right? So yeah. if you're trying to do case management and then also, you know, monitor somebody's like medication and all this other stuff, like, 
you don't get to do the piece that you're uniquely qualified to do. So it's, there's a lot of beauty in being able to allow other people to do like what they're really good at doing with, you know, case management, peer specialist supports, that type of a thing. And even just what, what Grace is doing this morning is such a, you know, it, it highlights her role, like her expertise, right? I mean, she can be an empowering agent at her clinic with her care coordinators because of her training. Um, and so that's what Grace is good at, and she can hand those skills off to others. Right. And, and you know, one of the things that I uh, uh, listened to Dr. Perinda Khatri talk about um, in, in how they integrate at Cherokee, and one of the things that she said that struck me is, Everybody in the primary care team or the integrated care team responds to the functions of the system, right? So you're, you have your expertise, but you're really mutated enough in the system that you're actually responding to what the system is designed to do, right? And so that's where you sort of go beyond um, professional identities and guilds to really recognize what are we designed to do? And how do we best leverage the skill sets that I have and you have to get at that, right? And our, our doctor degree sort of talking about yesterday that the VHC may see a patient, but may also uh, work with the medical assistant or the nurse practitioner to get their immunizations done that day, right? So that we are curious enough about the broader health and functions of primary care. And I wonder if thinking about that would be one uh, platform where this conversation can be more equitable or get more equity in that. Absolutely. Yeah, so we have some uh, some interviews we're going to cut to here, um, and then we're going to let Grace go because I know she's got her, her talk to give to the care coordinators. I'm telling you, we do not plan this stuff. We do not <laughs> plan it this way. But um, our, our first cut here is going to be to Jeffrey Rang. So Jeffrey was at the um, at a conference called the uh, Association for Community Health Improvement Conference. Uh, Jeffrey is at a bunch of conferences, so he's great at this. So he's going to give us a few thoughts about that conference where they discussed these sorts of issues, particularly with the role of community health workers. So let's listen here to Jeffrey Ring. Hello, everyone. This is Jeffrey Ring here, and I want to share with you my recent experience last week in Atlanta, where I attended the Association for Community Health Improvement Conference. Uh, the, the work that the participants at the conference were doing there was very relevant for the kinds of conversations we're having here on the podcast for improving uh, integrated care, and in particular, improving uh, and discovering innovative models for the delivery of extraordinary healthcare to vulnerable and underserved communities. The uh, Association for Community Health Improvement is associated with the American Hospital Association, and many of the attendees are in fact folks who work in hospitals across the nation that um, that focus on the community benefit piece of you know, how hospitals really give back to the local communities in terms of um, health care and social services. Within the American Hospital Association, you may be familiar with the Institute for Diversity and Health Equity. In fact, the Institute has a pledge that uh, healthcare organizations and hospitals uh, take, and that pledge is very much uh, about um, providing uh, cultural competence training and uh, stratifying uh, outcome data to understand whether there are any health 
disparities um, in-house, and so forth. Uh, If your healthcare organization has not taken the pledge, you may want to visit the Institute for Diversity and Health Equity website and download the package and uh, learn more. Anyway, all of this to say that the Institute for Diversity and Health Equity within the AHA has partnered recently with the National Urban League. This is a delicious partnership and, uh, and, and rocket fuel for uh, thinking about new and emerging models of healthcare for um, vulnerable populations. And the focus of uh, this workshop that I facilitated is on uh, community health workers, the role of community health workers in uh, delivery of care integrated delivery uh, in a diverse team of practitioners. Uh, There are plenty of controversial aspects about community health workers, and I would say that we took all of those on in the uh, workshop that we presented. We discussed the roles and uh, definitions of a community health worker, and I encourage you, if you'd like to learn more about that, to check out the American Public Health Association that has a lot of resources Uh, We discussed training and supervision issues for community health workers, as well as uh, how community health workers um, interact with the rest of the team and patients and what those workflows are all about. Finally, we discussed funding and uh, the resources uh, and the return on investment of uh, bringing community health workers onto your team. The uh, presenters Um, were from the University of Pennsylvania Health System uh, in Philadelphia and also the Henry Ford Health System in Michigan. Uh, Their examples and narrative and stories uh, about the quality and outcomes of their work as well as uh, training and funding uh, were were quite inspiring and very helpful. Anyway, uh, if you are interested in learning more, uh, keep your eye as well on the Association for Community Health Improvement. Um, uh, I'm sorry, and keep your eye also on the Institute for Diversity and Health Equity because the AHA and the National Urban League will soon be um, finishing up a, a toolkit, which I think will uh, be a very useful resource. Anyway, uh, that's what I wanted to share with you from my uh, time in Atlanta. Uh, take good care, everybody. All right, so that was Jeffrey Ring, uh, sort of uh, uh, on site for us at the Association for uh, uh, Community Health Improvement Conference. Thanks to Jeffrey for that report. Um, yeah, one thing I, I, I wish Jeffrey had talked a little bit more. About, we'll ask him maybe at a future podcast is what the sort of what the controversies around community health workers. I, I imagine that some of what we've talked about, as far as role definition and training and things like that, are part of it. Um, what what some of that discussion was. I was curious about that in particular. Our next cut here is um, my interview, actually, with Jody Palaha. Now, Jody uh, put together a conference uh, host, uh, uh, co-sponsored by between uh, ETSU, uh, Eastern Tennessee State University, and CFHA, our association, um, and led by two of our CFHA technical assistance providers. Uh, on this issue of population health and care management. And so I started my interview with her by asking her, why have a conference on complex patients? What was it that was the motivation behind this? In part, I think my motivation was a little bit selfish. We were trying to implement 
team-based care for complex patients um, in our clinics, our three family medicine residency clinics, and had so many questions about how do you risk stratify? And once you do that, like which patients should you uh, be targeting for care and what should team-based care look like? How should how should a team assess the the patient and then how do we follow up with that in a meaningful way and for how long and how do we graduate people? Just a question after question after question. And uh, we knew from um, some of our clinical operations people that other healthcare systems in the region were experimenting with the same kinds of programming, uh, maybe uh, struggling to deploy care managers, thinking about care manager roles, um, talking on conference calls uh, about their risk strat procedures and challenges. And so it seemed like a hot topic and it seemed like one that would really be, like I said, kind of um, self-serving, uh, very helpful to us. So that was the that was the impetus for it. We had a we have a HRSA grant that is um, that required us to have a, a conference in year three and the the only um, sort of rule was that it had to be a team-based care slash interprofessional conference. And I thought, well if we're gonna do something about interprofessional care, why not make it about a topic that everyone is uh, concerned about and thinking about. So that's sort of why we put this together. So uh, given that you've just had a conference, you probably have solved all the world's problems and figured out exactly how to risk stratify, how to develop workflows for care management that apply to all places at all times in all populations, right? Um, Not really, no. Um, what we envisioned for the conference was uh, that we bring voices from outside the region for a little bit of the time to give us ideas that maybe just um, would spark some innovation uh, regionally and give us all new ideas about ways that places have approached this problem elsewhere. And then the other really big um, sort of aim that I had was just to hear what other stakeholders were doing and have it be almost like a summit-style experience where stakeholders could all exchange ideas and um, kind of learn about what's going on regionally. And that's exactly what we did. So what were what would you say one of the take-homes? I think it's, it's just a fascinating area of development because everybody's mm-hmm. trying to figure out, you know, how do you follow patients effectively? How do you track them? How do you even know if they're getting better and, and track that? Um, what were some of the take-homes, both on what what people are doing now um, and maybe what people are, are hoping to do better? I think one of the big take-homes is that all healthcare systems are leaning very hard on other team members now, more than I've ever seen. We had Incredible, and we we worked hard to make sure this was true, but it wasn't hard to do it really. In the end, we had uh, we had 130 people. We probably had 20 or 30 pharmacists, 20 or 30 medical doctors and nurse practitioners, 20 or 30 nurses slash care coordinators, um, a fair number of social work and behavioral health folks, lots of people from administrative roles and payer roles. Um, and so the take home to me is that this has really been, I think, a game changer in motivating um, all healthcare settings to get on board with uh, 
team-based care and even if it doesn't um even if it doesn't pay right like everybody was talking about well hopefully this value-based programming will will come come to bear on this and it'll all make it worthwhile but right now like this is the only way we can do this um, and in this part of Tennessee, we just haven't seen motivation to, to engage across all these different disciplines and, until this problem and this issue. So that was kind of a, the biggest take home for me. Let's drill down a little bit with respect to uh, risk stratification. Um, I think that's one of those areas that um, people have been trying to crack that nut for a long time. What are the some of the emerging themes with regard to how people are now conceptualizing risk? And sure. is it, you know, uh, just to throw a, a concept in there, it seems to me that what I've seen is people identifying risk relative to their institutional needs. Um, and, then, and then that becomes a definition of risk for them because it's either risk that they might be at risk for financially based on a contract or, mm-hmm. or, or some other internal motivation. I'm curious what you think. How are people thinking about risk stratification? I do feel like some healthcare programs are uh, not genuinely thinking about sort of um, complex patients with real, real health and social health needs. They're more thinking, oh, well, diabetes patients are all really hard to treat, so we'll throw something at patients who have diabetes. And, oh, people with COPD, we'll, we'll throw something at them as well. And so we did hear about some of these, I think, somewhat less um, articulated programs last week um, but I do think quite a few programs are trying to get at kind of who are the most needy patients, and they're defining complexity using a combination of um, absolute health need and health risk. Could be numbers of, of multiple um, chronic illnesses combined with um, cost and um, expense in especially ED and hospital visits. One of the interesting things that I'm noticing in risk strat is that you can use kind of a combination of approaches looking at illness with cost and really stratify people into multiple categories. And some of our um, payers are requiring us to have some sort of complexity score or um, category listed in, for every patient. Um, and one of the things that our clinicians uh, and healthcare providers, our team-based um, providers are noticing is that it's not the most, um, the highest risk patients that that they feel that we need to be directing care to, but patients who are moving in that direction, patients who are kind of up and coming. It's almost kind of a way of thinking about prevention. Um, and so when you risk stratify, the people who are at the very top, the most risky, tend to be people that are, are hard to do much for. Um, and it's the folks that are kind of one step down. So that's one, I think, sort of movement within that risk strat um, process that's, I think, uh, an awareness for me. And the other one is um, there are a fair number of people that we just can't reach, um, we don't even know who they are. They're, they are say, say they're on our panel, but we can't find them. They don't have a phone. They don't have a um, way to get in. And I think 
uh, almost all of our clinicians in their different meetings have eventually come to the point of, we've got to figure out these people because this is the real deal right here. So I think those are the two areas where I think we're going to see risk strap methods getting more sophisticated, uh, finding inaccessible patients and finding patients who are sort of on the verge of becoming in a top risk category. So if you had a crystal ball, we're still at the early stages, obviously, of, of this work on, on uh, care management and risk stratification um, and true population care. Um, if, if you look out 10 or 15 years, um, do you see some national standards emerging in this, or is this going to be one of those other areas where all healthcare is local and therefore... Um, you know, risk stratification will really be a local enterprise, um, either driven by a clinic or a payer or system, um, and thus sort of frag- still remain fairly fragmented. Uh, I see it could be kind of a hybrid type of, of solution there. I, for example, our clinics are moving to using... Um, a risk strat method that's recommended by the AAFP. Um, however, that method does not include cost in its um, calculations. And so, like, because our local group is very curious about cost and wanting to incorporate that into the equation, we are. Um, so we're actually adding, like, a more, um, like, a higher level of risk based on cost. So all of the people that are in the highest category by AFP plus those that additionally, um, are very um, cost-intensive. You know, we have local processes as well at each of our clinics. After that gate, that initial gate of identification through those methods, cost and the AAFP stratification process, we have our local providers vet all the patients on the list and kind of make internal decisions about who they feel like they want involved. And I think that's a really important step because your care coordinators get pulled in a lot of directions. And if they are to be um, sort of protected to address this unique group of patients, stakeholders have to feel like that group of patients are the patients they want in there and that they have some say-so about getting patients into that um, treatment plan or program. And so that's uh, been an important local element to kind of how we've developed our risk strat process and team care identification process, I don't see how you can, um, it's hard to imagine not allowing that local control. Now, addressing the team care piece, you mentioned that at the conference, you had all sorts of different team representatives, pharmacists, your care mm-hmm. managers, um, social workers, physicians, etc. cetera. Um, I'm wondering about the evolution of this sort of work beyond the compartmentalization of, oh, this is what the care manager does. Mm-hmm. That's something that was discussed at the conference. That's something you see as an important um, kind of function of, of this work. Yes. So two things. One is more than ever before at the conference and even kind of leading up to it, as I spoke with lots of people on the phone, I did a lot of, uh, Um, I really um, did a fair amount of um, hustling to get lots of people to come and present and be involved in the conference and learned a lot in the process. Um, 
more than ever before, I'm seeing innovations in communication across agencies, across um, areas of expertise, and um, across uh, even across um, certainly across professions, and then also across levels of um, sort of care. So people who are at the thirty thousand foot level, kind of getting more engaged at the grassroots change level and vice versa. Um, and that's really, really cool. A good example, our local community mental health agency, which is huge and serves this whole region, um, and which has been um, a very um, siloed um, service for a very long time, has just in the last like year or two developed some incredible innovation in communicating with um, primary care clinics, placing navigators in primary care clinics, um, and creating programming that really makes that um, builds a little bit of that team feeling. Um, I think you know it's an empirical question how um, effective that is, but it's certainly a step in the right direction from my view. So that's an exciting development, I think, and that's uh, something that that echoed throughout the conference in different ways. And I'll be curious to hear where it goes. And finally, I asked Jody what she would do differently if she had to do the conference over again. Um, you know, we had a bunch of stuff on reimbursement. We had a bunch of stuff on uh, local resources to address social health needs. We had a pediatrics track. We had local teams um, presenting innovations and in how they're doing complex patient care. We had a panel of, you know, top-level administrators who have kind of the 50,000-foot view, and then we had these two national presenters, so it was a good swath of things. What I think everybody in that whole place could have benefited from, and I would I would add to this, this to the conference if I could, is um, teaching the entire team more about how to talk with patients using language that empowers them, um, health care literacy, uh, self-management, and just uh, overall kind of shifting the way that we um, you um, incorporate patients as team members. I think that is not just a care coordinator role. It has to be, um, a, it, it really needs to be a skill that everyone on the healthcare team uses. And if I, I wish I had, now I kind of wish we would have had another half a day and we could make everyone participate in this training and do some, we have an amazing standardized patient program here. It would have been really cool to bring standardized patients in, everybody practice a bunch and, um, well, next time, except yeah. for I'm not going to, I'm not going to be the one organizing it next time. <laughs> Somebody else do that. <laughs> All right. Thanks to Jody for, for, uh, giving us that time and for a great conference. Uh, Grace, uh, I know you've got to get going to your care coordinator MI training, uh, but you have a re yes. reaction here to Jody's interview. Yes, I just I, I love so much about what Jody said about like the continuation of care and the risk stratification. But I just wanted to give some more weight and space to what she said about the end about the language of empowerment and thinking about the patient and the role they play as a member of the team. I thought those words and that perspective was so powerful for exactly what we're talking about with all of these different roles and the way that they come to together and through all of it, it's about that person's health and that person's care. And so the ways that we can incorporate and pull them in. So thank you all. I've got to run and I'm looking forward to talking with you again next month. Thanks, Grace. Bye, Grace. Bye, Grace. Yeah. And, you know, I'll just piggyback off of Grace's uh, 
uh, comments there as we uh, begin to close our podcast here. Um, that's the thing that struck me as well, that she left with that sense that if we'd done a little bit more on patient communication um, and uh, communication that empowers, she says, I think, empowers the patients as team members, um, uh, and that, that all members of the care team, so not just the community health workers, not just the care managers, uh, but the physicians, uh, the, the behavioral health personnel, that all of us could stand to kind of do a better job in that arena, particularly with complex patients. Um, I, I thought that was just a key takeaway take from my interview with her. I think for me, uh, the part that resonated uh, with what you're saying from Jody's interview is one of the things that's been haunting me in our implementation of uh, integrated behavioral health is that in our design, we do not have patient accounts. We do not have a patient-informed delivery system. And uh, that's one of the in, in – I'm a big student of design thinking and sort of looking into – uh, the systems that we are putting in, and how is the ultimate user, which most of the time is our patients, what what are what are they thinking? You know, do they want a warm handoff? Do they see a different way of doing this? You know, th those kinds of things. And I, all of our experiences say they like it and it's positive, but we've never really partnered with them to say, hey, you know, this is what we think about the workflow. Um, what do you think about it? What's been your experience? Or you know. We haven't done that, and I don't know if uh, if a lot of uh, systems systematically do that, um, and that's one of the things that we are trying to make sure that we do um, in the Rio Grande Valley in the next few months and hopefully in the next few years. Yeah, great point, Deepu. I, I can answer that question. No, <laughs> a lot of systems don't do that. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I think developmentally, I think it's a developmental issue on some level because I think sure. we're just doing a better job of listening to the care team. And I think yeah. that is the, the, the first step um, because we yeah. need to listen to our workers and, and to listen to what they're saying. And, and we're just starting to get better at that. Um, but a, a key next step, or maybe in some cases concurrent step, is exactly what you're talking about. Is the system designed around the patient? I think we can all categorically say there's no way. <laughs> there's no way that yeah. you can say that the system is designed around the patient. It's designed around a whole set of traditions and workflows and um, uh, constraints. Efficiency. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah, so we don't do it. In fact, when I do TA, I often use a tool called the MEHAF to uh, give, you know, sort of assess a, a clinic's level of integration. And there's an item there on, on, uh, on how included the patient is in the design of the integrated care service. And mm -hmm. I, I almost am tempted to skip it over at every single one of these evaluation sessions that I have simply because every clinic is basically at the same level. Zero. No, we don't have right. any patient participation in the design of your of our integrated care service. Um, so, I, I, you know, not to, you know, put you know, get, get people off the hook on this, but I do think it's a developmental thing. I think we'll get to it, um, but we're we're so far right now from it. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that the, the CFHA annual conference um, had last year in Houston was a, an entire day on uh, mental health policy in Texas. And that was a great 
um, addition to the conference, they actually had a uh, consumer advocacy group there. And what I loved about that day was the questions they were asking of the policymakers, clinicians, and and sort of like hospital leaders, right? And that was fantastic to sort of, one, to have them there and to sort of be the organization in small ways, uh, sort of birthing that piece into the larger forum. Great. Well, we could go on literally forever, and we will revisit um, different pieces of this in future podcasts. Uh, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. Um, We hope you've enjoyed our discussion. If you have, again, comments, uh, questions, you can email us at info at cfha.net. You can find the podcast and refer friends to your podcast, which would be awesome, uh, either by referring them to integratedcarenews.com or finding the podcast directly on SoundCloud or iTunes. Um, So my name is Naftali Saran. Thank you very much for listening. On behalf of Deepu and Amber and Grace, um, we uh, thank you for listening. And as usual, we're going to have Deepu take us out with uh, uh, a centering thought. All right. The centering thought that I have for all of us is a definition of compassion by the Dalai Lama. And he says, usually our concept of compassion or love refers to the feeling of closeness we have with our friends and loved ones. Sometimes compassion also carries a sense of pity. This is wrong. Any love or compassion which entails looking down on the other is not genuine compassion. To be genuine, compassion must be based on respect for the other and on the realization that others have the right to be happy and overcome suffering just as much as you. On this basis, Since you can see that others are suffering, you develop a genuine sense of concern for them. Thank you, Deepu, and thank you all. See you next time. Our thanks to Jody Palaha. We neglected to mention that Dr. Palaha is one of the co-editors of our journal, The Family Systems and Health, the official journal of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. Thanks again to Jody for her time.